All right, we are back and probably going to enter that sordid world of politics, like it or not. I think the first item I'm going to hit was something we mentioned several weeks ago in the show that down in Fremont, California, where there was uh, a lot of local opposition to where the city council wanted to place a, uh, a so-called homeless navigation center. A 59-year-old man, Ru Ping Sung, was protesting this whole matter by going several days without food and a hunger strike. He was camped out before the meeting that took place, wherein they finally voted to... Uh, to the decision was either to put it out on Dakota Road, which was vehemently opposed by a large number of residents out there, who seemed surprisingly to be all Chinese Americans, or to put it right in the parking lot adjacent to City Hall. Apparently, the word of all this has been percolating through the the homeless community because they appear to be descending on this town in droves. There's more to this story. We're not sure what it is. Uh, the Fremont vice mayor, Raj Salwan, noted some surprise when he was informed of this hunger strike. He said, I've been in city government 15 years. We've never had a hunger strike in any decision. Oh, and Mr. Sun, what he was protesting was not the homeless, quote-unquote, navigation center. He said he didn't care where it was built, but what he did care about was that the people in the city were given no opportunity to vote on the matter. Vice Mayor Salwan noted that in, if they held off a decision on this, it could mean a loss of $2 million in state and county funding. So if someone knows anything about how it is, the state and the county are going to kick in $2 million to build this flop house. It's going to fill house 50 people. Then you need to drop us a line at info@radioparallax.com. Now, we're certainly not against helping people in need on this program, God knows. But this homeless debate seems to be framed by homeless advocates. And I don't want to seem unsympathetic to this, but, well, let me hearken back to the, the trip out into eastern Nevada. While gassing up in the little town of Eureka, a man on a Harley Davidson pulled in and we got chatting. He lived somewhere between Yosemite and Fresno and said, frankly, he was looking to find a place to relocate out in Nevada somewhere. Noted that friends say to him, oh, San Francisco, yeah, where they poop right in the street. Uh, Mr. Miller points out, uh, generally it's on the sidewalk, not technically right in the street. Although, you know, frankly, it would be a lot better if it was in the street. And uh, in in my opinion, the efforts that have been made, the extensive efforts that have been made in, in Sacramento, if you just take a drive down Richards Boulevard, you'll see how successful these efforts have been in uh, uh, navigating homeless into better situations. America has always had drifters. We have always had winos. We have always had alcoholics. We've always had, well, tramps and hobos. And if you talk to people with extensive experience in dealing with the homeless, you will, I think, hear them say that a large number of these people, let's just call it that, a large number of these people have no intention of being mainstreamed back into some sort of conventional life. I know I'm going to make a lot of people mad when I say this, but I, I, I honestly, I think that's the reality of the situation. There was many a night during my medical training and, and afterwards wherein I got up out of a warm bed in the middle of the night to go down and admit and take care of the homeless. I am not unfamiliar with this 
patient population. And no, I'm not suggesting we do not help such people. We need to help such people. But it is my observation that the methods we are using to help such people are not really making a dent. There's a big scandal here brewing about the fact that the Yolo County Sheriff's evidently picked up a a disoriented man somewhere down near Cortland and took him across county lines into Sacramento where there were facilities to deal with him. And this is being treated as some big scandal. My question is, what were the deputies supposed to do down in a rural part of Yolo County where there are no facilities to help such an individual? Well, Mr. McMillan is telling me that I have it wrong. They didn't take him to a homeless facility. They put him in a McDonald's. Wasn't it next? Wasn't it nearby one of these facilities? I, I don't know. They took him from a rural location where he was going to get no help to a more urban location where I'd say it was at least theoretically possible. And yes, I guess this is known as patient dumping. Back in 2013, there was a big scandal about how people were moved from Nevada, I believe it was, down to, uh, down to I think, Loaves and Fishes in, in Sacramento. And uh, they were talking about, oh, my God, patient, they're, they're dumping these people. It's like, hello? If you've been in medicine, you, you, you will be acquainted with the fact that people from other states, states where the weather will kill you in the winter, solve their problems of, of derelicts by buying them bus tickets, telling them that when you go to California, the weather in the winter ain't going to kill you. They come here in droves. One of the major reasons we have such a problem here in California is because we are importing people from other states who fit the bill of homeless. And no, I sure as heck don't have a solution to this problem, but I, I would suggest that certain elements in society, and, and I think in the Bay Area, this would be a, a combination of Silicon Valley billionaires and real estate developers. And while I would take the position that, you know, not every real estate developer is a Donald Trump, there's an undeniable fact that Donald Trump is a real estate developer. And if, like myself, you grew up in the Bay Area and saw what happened from the efforts of real estate developers, you'd probably have a great deal of suspicion that uh, (laughs) the efforts to help the homeless in the Bay Area are part of addressing the issue of housing prices. A problem allegedly that's going to be solved by building more affordable housing, building lots of it, and building it all over the place. One place I'm horrified to note they're planning to build is down in the South Bay in some of the former salt ponds. It is a matter of historical record that San Francisco Bay back in the 1800s was 50% larger than it is today. A lot of it got filled in and built upon. Parts that were diked off and used as, um, as salt ponds, well, there's still quite an extensive collection. Uh, they, I think, currently are owned by the Cargill Corporation. They used to be Morton Salt. They used to be Leslie Salt. They used to be a lot of salt-making corporations. These days, I guess it's Cargill. They own a bunch of acres over in Redwood City that they're proposing, um, well, this is turning into quite a battle. Real estate developers, of course, would like to take those uh, diked-off areas, fill them in, and build stuff on them and make buku bucks in doing so. And uh, my, I imagine that when the sea levels rise, as they seem destined to do over the next few decades, and those houses get a little bit moist, those developers and their children will probably take a pause while skiing in Aspen, look at the news reports and say, gosh, that's a shame, isn't it? Now, the state of California, to its credit, is suing the Trump administration. This, this started last week over the EPA's refusal 
to extend protections under the Clean Water Act to the salt ponds in San Francisco Bay. Item I'm pulling out of EE Newsnet by uh, Ariel Wittenberg notes that at issues are development plans for 1,365 acres owned by Cargill Inc. and DMB Pacific Ventures LLC. These tidal wetlands were converted to industrial salt production in the mid-1800s. But conservationists have been buying tracts in the area since the 1970s, arguing that restoring marshes will improve water quality and combat rising sea levels. The EPA, for its part, this is Trump's EPA, declared in March that none of the property qualified as, quote, waters of the United States, unquote, and is therefore not protected by the Clean Water Act. This has led California Attorney General Xavier Becerra to file a lawsuit in U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, taking aim at the EPA decision. He's being joined by environmental groups that have already sued the Trump administration seeking protection for the salt ponds. A number of Californians have come out in support of the lawsuits, including actor Robert Redford, who wrote an op-ed piece in the San Francisco Chronicle, which we will read from shortly. Although I do want to quote a zinger from Redford who noted that locating 30,000 more people in the path of sea level rise right next to an already gridlocked freeway doesn't make environmental or economic sense. Now the EPA in this case is reversing a 2016 draft analysis by Obama's EPA, which concluded that the, the, the 1,200 acres should be protected by the Clean Water Act. This reversal means that developers... Real estate developers won't need a Clean Water Act permit, which will save them hundreds of thousands of dollars, as any destruction of federally protected wetlands or waterways requires developers to offset the damage by paying to restore similar nearby aquatic resources. And if you're familiar with how these offsets work, I think you'll be a bit dubious of how everything comes out well when that happens. I cited on this program some years back the fact that when Angelo Sacopoulos was intending to build his McVillage next to the freeway in East Sacramento, there was a, a not an endangered, but a threatened species, the Swainson hawk, which was uh, uh, nesting in a tree in East Sac. And I, I know quite a bit about this because the tree was on my property. As part of the rigmarole of going through the motions of pretending that they're going to do mitigations, uh, Phil Angelides promised the city council that, you know, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll get some land upstream that'll be just fine for the hawks. It did turn out that my tree in question was something of a moot point because it died the next year, and I had to pay $7,000 to have it removed. And of course, Mr. Mr. Bill looks at me at this point and says, coincidence? To which I answer, well, yeah, probably, because I'm a coincidence theorist. We need to take a, a slight detour into the, this, this legal debate over this because, well, there's some black humor here. In their draft analysis back in 2016, the Obama administration relied on the significant nexus test, which was set forth by Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy in what's described as the famously muddled Rapanos versus United States case. Kennedy ruled that wetlands and waterways should be protected under the Clean Water Act if they had a chemical, biological, or hydrologic connection to traditionally navigable water. So in 2016, the draft found the salt ponds were navigable, in fact, waters, because I guess there's boat traffic going right off the, the coast of Redwood City. Trump administration concluded instead that, well, the flow and exchange of water at the site are a product mainly of salt production and not natural. 
adding that most of these salt ponds were created before the Clean Water Act was passed, meaning they can't be protected. Anyway, they're going to fight it out in the courts, and um, we're going to be rooting for the environmentalists on this one, not the real estate developers. Although we wouldn't put it past, you know, them trying to slip one past everybody that, uh, you know, if we can just build these you know, on these 1,300 acres here in Redwood City, we might be able to ease the homeless problem. Anyway, let's quote from Robert Redford, something I don't think we've ever done in this program before. Bob Redford is no dummy. <laughs> no, I'm not quoting for the piece. That's, that's my opinion. Said Redford, John Muir came to San Francisco in 1868. He stayed just a day. He wanted to go somewhere wild. He took a couple of weeks, and he walked from the city to Yosemite. He fell in love with what he called California's range of light. About 100 years later, when I was a young actor, I took a couple of weeks, and I walked from San Francisco to Big Sur. I fell in love with California's nature, too. I've tried to be an environmental activist ever since. A few years ago, I had the honor of narrating an Emmy Award-winning television series about the history of San Francisco Bay. Making that four-hour series taught me a lot. We had beautiful footage of the beauty and diversity of the wildlife that live around the bay. We told the history from the gold rush days. We included the booming development and the filling of the bay. In the 1950s, developers had bay-filled plans that would have turned the bay into just a broad river. The most grandiose of all the land speculator schemes was to scrape off the top of San Bruno Mountain, build condos in the newly flattened Mesa, and conveyor belt the dirt to fill the bay, and build more houses on the fill. The last episode was about three Berkeley women who, in 1961, founded Save San Francisco Bay. They wanted lots of members. It cost only a dollar to join. The organization bloomed into a movement to halt the rampant development and dumping and burning of garbage in the bay. People all around the bay rose up to support them in protecting and restoring the wetlands. It was to the voters' good credit since then, no one even tries to get elected around the bay unless they have strong environmental policies and principles. But the struggle continues. In 2009, agribusiness giant Cargill applied to use the marshlands just south of Redwood City to build 12,000 new residences and 1 million square feet of office space. There was so much public outrage, Cargill Salt withdrew the application. A few months ago, the Trump administration's EPA changed a preliminary determination of the San Francisco EPA office, declaring that the 1,360-acre site is not subject to the Clean Water Act. Cargill has quickly followed with an announcement that it intends to explore future uses. I think I'll repeat that previously mentioned sentence or paragraph, uh, locating 30,000 more people in the path of sea level rise right next to an already gridlocked freeway doesn't make environmental or economic sense. On Tuesday, Joe Cochette, notes the piece, the attorney representing the Coalition of Citizen Environmental Groups, filed a lawsuit challenging the EPA ruling, saying, quote, this is one more Trump attack on our environment and San Francisco Bay in the name of profit, which is this administration's sole consideration in leading our country, end quote. Redford notes, I'm proud to add my name to the list of people, including over 60 elected officials and organizations who have already signed letters of support. Congratulations to all those Bay Savers and Bay Saviors from your perseverance to protect what the Spanish explorers called the harbor of all harbors. Anyway, I'm sad to note that the Sierra Club did not appear to be one of the groups that was coming out against this development near Redwood City, and I was further dismayed to read in their publication the following. The decision around California's approach to water policy has finally shifted away from trying to justify or debunk the need-slash-costs for the Delta Twin Tunnels project 
for the first time in over a decade. A recent executive order from Governor Gavin Newsom established this refreshing shift, and Sierra Club California activists quickly responded with an important paper that outlines how California's water policy can now be shaped to promote sustainability and regional resilience. The Small Alternatives to Tunnels, a sensible water management portfolio, available online apparently, was researched and written by a team of volunteer leaders on Sierra Club's California Water Committee, who have expertise in water policy. The paper calls for a sustainable portfolio approach as a solution to the many water challenges that California faces. Well, they're saying that they're promoting an article that talks about smart alternatives to tunnels. It says tunnel S in parentheses because Gavin Newsom, when he first assumed the reins of the governorship, came forward to say he was not in favor of the Twin Tunnels proposal. Nope, not Gavin. He was in favor of a single tunnel proposal. Of course, if you make your single tunnel bigger, it can carry as much water as two tunnels. If you don't believe me, ask your plumber. In fact, we may bring, Cal- we may bring Radio Parallax's plumbing professional back on this program to, to clarify that, if needed. I want to quote from uh, flamethrowing environmental activist Dan Bacher uh, on, on not exactly the, that issue, but uh, a related one. Dan's headline was, Newsom vetoes bill to protect endangered fish species from attacks by Trump. Article notes that Mary Creasman, CEO of the California League of Conservation Voters, issued a statement responding to the governor's veto of SB1 that accused Newsom of siding with Trump and corporations over California's families and wildlife. And noting that the governor is sending a clear message that California's values are up for grabs, unquote. Now, it's no secret that the Trump administration is rolling back environmental regulations everywhere it seems to find them, led by, uh, well, it was being led by Scott Pruitt, one of the leading uh, (laughs) global warming debunkers in the U.S. Senate. Now, SB1 got passed as an effort to enact the California Environmental Public Health and Worker Defense Act, that's what they called it, of 2019, Its intent was to ensure that the protections afforded under federal environmental and labor laws and regulations as of January 2017 could remain in place in the event of federal regulatory changes. In his veto message, Newsom said, I'm returning the Senate Bill 1 without my signature. Adding later, while I disagree about the efficacy and necessity of Senate Bill 1, I look forward to working with the legislature in our shared fight against the weakening of California's environmental and worker protections. Dan Bacher tends to see the hand of the oil companies in an awful lot of things that go on environmentally in California and does note that, well, Gavin Newsom's, uh, well, I don't know if he's his best pal or number one supporter, but he's certainly very chummy with Gordon Getty of Getty Oil. Bakker editorialized in the piece that it's no surprise that Newsom vetoed the bill since the total contributions from agriculture in his 2018 campaign for governor were $637,000. Newsom received $58,400 from Beverly Hills agribusiness tycoon Stuart Resnick, $54,400 from Linda Resnick, I, I take it that's, that's the limit, and $58,400 from E.J. Gallo. Dan notes that agribusiness tycoons are among the most strident supporters of the voluntary agreements and the Delta Tunnel, and are among the strongest proponents of attacks on the Endangered Species Act. We've got to get Bacher back on the show, Mr. McMillan. Yes. And speaking of agribusiness tycoons, Stuart Resnick and Linda Resnick, 
Oh, you know, Stuart, by the way, used to be a hedge fund manager before he got into agriculture. They gained quite a bit of publicity for themselves, good publicity, by donating what is described as the second largest endowment of a university in America ever. They gave $750 million, or at least a pledge that, to Caltech to research how to improve water. LA Times business columnist Michael Hiltzik sounded off on this in the Times. He said the Beverly Hills billionaires Stuart and Linda Resnick garnered a heaping helping of adulatory publicity last week with the announcement of their record-breaking $750 million pledge to Caltech for research into climate change and environmental sustainability. News coverage of the Resnick's gift bristled with praise for their generosity and testimonials to their devotion to the cause of addressing climate change. Some articles quoted Stuart Resnick describing the donation of, as having arisen from a desire to serve his children and his children's children. Noted Hiltzik, what was missing in all this coverage, or at least got buried as an afterthought, was any acknowledgement of the sources of at least some of the Resnick's largesse. Although the $750 million represents a personal gift to Caltech rather than a corporate gift from the Resnick's principal corporate entity, the Wonderful Company, they're engaged through that company in some arguably unsustainable environmental practices. Caltech's announcement made a passing reference to Wonderful Co., but sedulously avoided communicating any details of what that company actually does. He notes its Fiji Water subsidiary, which was in turn into a lifestyle brand of bottled water through expert marketing, ships its product more than 5,000 miles to the U.S. from a Pacific Island country, the trip requiring the burning of quite a bit of fossil fuel, which, as you may have noted, is a major contributor to climate change. Even though importing bottled water to the U.S. is wasteful and unnecessary, the wonderful company's almond and pistachio trees are among the thirstiest crops in California, where the availability of water is likely to shrink as a result of climate change. And as we reported on this program before on more than one occasion, uh, the Resnick's control over a key supply of water could make it difficult for anyone to craft a statewide water policy that weighs their needs against those of others. Hiltzik says it would be churlish to suggest that the Resnick's gift to Caltech is devoid of genuine altruistic impulses. We should take Mr. Resnick at his word that he's looking ahead to the world that the present generation will bequeath to posterity. But it would be naive to assume that altruism is the whole story. The gift speaks volumes about the benefits that big donors receive from their philanthropy, both in this life and hereafter, and about the economics of billionaire philanthropy itself. The $750 million pledge won't put much of a crimp in the Resnick's fortune, which Forbes has estimated at $9 billion. The article goes on to show uh, examples of how many acre feet uh, are needed uh, among water use for different crops. The only thing that comes in higher than almond-slash-pistachio at 3.8 million acre feet of water use was alfalfa at 5.2, but I think they grow a lot more alfalfa than they do almonds and pistachios. The article notes that it's certainly not new for wealthy families to use philanthropy to create an image of themselves for posterity that may be at odds with their activities during their lifetimes. When the donations are large enough, the effort generally works. 
Anyway, we don't have time to go all over all of this in great detail. We mentioned on this show in the past that apparently the wonderful corporation gets more water than does Los Angeles. Just going to close with two paragraphs from the piece. Growing nuts in an environment of scarcity requires unusual arrangements to ensure an uninterrupted water supply, and the Resnicks have been in the middle of them. The key arrangement involves the Kern Water Bank, a state-funded project that, in a highly controversial transaction, still before the state court, was transferred to a private entity allegedly controlled by the Resnicks. As I reported in 2010, the water bank, a complex of wells, pumps, and pipelines outside Bakersfield, was initially part of the $1.75 billion bond-funded state water project, which provides water for 25 million Californians and irrigates 750,000 acres. In 1995, the state gave up on the project and turned it over to Kern County Water Authorities. They promptly ceded it to a local consortium of public and private entities, including the Westside Mutual Water Company, a subsidiary of the Resnick-owned Paramount Farms. We'll keep following this in the future, but I think we're out of time. Actually, Mr. Millen says I got about a minute and a half. Um, let's clarify then what we talked about on last week's program, what you can recycle and what you can't recycle. All right, the minute and a half we have left, according to Mr. McMillan, uh, I think I should hit again what to recycle, what you can't recycle. We, we didn't clarify a few issues. Egg cartons, the paper kind, are recyclable. The styrofoam kind, like styrofoam anything, are not. The more I thought about our little diatribe on last week's show about how we need to start doing the sorting again like we used to, paper in one bin, bottles in one bin, cans in one bin that was not so hard to do and if we did that again we would we'd be producing a lot less what turns out to be garbage if you contaminate paper with moisture they can't use it they can't recycle it i guess we should concentrate the list of things that are not recyclable don't put them in the recycling bin not recyclable aluminum foil pie pans coat hangers window glass or mirrors incandescent or fluorescent light bulbs Dishware or ceramics, all not recyclable. Plastic that's not recyclable, plastic bags, plastic wrap, plastic bottle tops, plastic cups, packing peanuts, plastic egg boxes, yogurt and margarine tubs, photos or film, all not recyclable. Don't put it in your recycling container. Here's one that surprised me. Among paper things that are not recyclable, towel or tissue rolls. Go figure. And here's a head-scratcher. Detergent bottles are not considered recyclable, but shampoo bottles are, cleaning products are, and bleach bottles are. I don't understand that one. There's a note in this piece put out by the Sierra Club, which is that plastic bags get caught in the equipment used for recycling. So never recycle plastic bags at home. Recycle bags at your local grocery store. We meant to get back to talk about Trump and the impeachment inquiry, but that'll keep. And I got a feeling a week from now, a lot of things are going to get uncovered that uh, will be most interesting. We shall see. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. He also should not be put in the recyclable container. No, use the regular garbage can. Although he is lobbying for the green waste. Anyway, I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We hope you enjoyed that. And we hope you will tune in again next week because... We'll be back in a week. See you then.